If there's one thing we all know, it's history repeats itself, especially when it comes to the macabre. And the similarities between Chris Watts and Chris Coleman go deeper and darker than the name they share. In January 2009, Sherry Coleman told a friend, if something happens to me, Chris did it. Out of the blue, her happy marriage was disintegrating in front of her eyes. For the first time, she wondered if there was another woman. She had no idea why her husband of 12 years would suddenly want a divorce. And just like that, she and her two little boys were gone. But just like his namesake, Chris Coleman hatched an elaborate plot that was so cruel and bizarre, it's hard to wrap your head around. This is one story you gotta hear to believe. It is so good to see you. I'm Amy. This is True Crime Recaps. Let's jump into this horror story on the day of. At 6.50 a.m. on May 5th, 2009, police walked into a scene straight out of a nightmare. Sherry Coleman and her sons, 11-year-old Garrett and 9-year-old Gavin, were in their beds. Bright red ligature marks were still vivid on their necks. Sherry had three of those marks and a black eye. She had fought hard to live. In the basement, a window was open. Throughout the house, messages were spray-painted in these big red letters. The words were scrawled across the walls, family pictures, even across one of the little boy's bodies. I am always watching. You have paid, punished, and you knew this was coming. Horrible stuff. Something like the Manson family would have done. So what kind of twisted soul could do something like that? Sherry met Chris Coleman at a canine training seminar in San Antonio in 1997. She was a 21-year-old military policewoman. He was a 22-year-old Marine. He was working as a canine handler. Now, when their eyes met, Across the doggy obstacle course, it was love at first sight. A few months later, she was pregnant with Garrett, and they made it official with a quickie wedding. Two years later, their second son, Gavin, was born. By 2009, the family of four was living just a short drive away from Chris's parents in Columbia, Illinois. His parents, Ron and Connie, were evangelical pastors, and Chris had grown up in the church, so it made sense for him to parlay his military training into a job as a personal bodyguard to an old family friend, Joyce Meyer. Now, if you're not familiar with her work, you're probably on the highway to hell. I'm totally kidding. I'm seriously kidding. I had no idea who she was either. She's actually a popular tele-evangelist, and she's the leader of an international Christian ministry. She was a close friend of his parents, and she'd known Chris since he was a kid. Now, it's not a secret that well-known tele-evangelists like Joyce bring in a lot of money. Hello, Jim and Tammy Baker. But can every cent of it be accounted for? Eh, maybe, maybe not. It's a high-profile job that can attract a lot of crazies. Letters range from the adoring to the bizarre. But in November of 2008, her bodyguard Chris became the target for a hate-filled email campaign. They talked about how Joyce's preaching was BS, and if he didn't stop working for her, his family would be wiped out while they slept. In early January of 2009, the threats got closer to home, literally. 
While he was on tour with Joyce Meyer in Hawaii, an ominous letter was delivered straight to his mailbox. It said, deny your God publicly or else. No more opportunities. Time is running out for you and your family. Can you imagine how scared Sherry must have been to read that while she was alone in the house with the kids? So when Chris got back into town, he filed a police report and he reached out to his neighbor for help since he happened to be a detective. Together, they convinced the police to patrol his neighborhood and his neighbor even put up an extra security camera aimed at the Coleman's mailbox, but they never caught anyone or like anything suspicious hanging around. But that's not to say that the scary letters just up and stopped. At the end of April, he got another one. It said in part, I have warned you to stop traveling and to stop carrying on with this fake religious life of stealing people's money. You think you are so special to do what you do. She, Joyce Meyer, is a B word and not worth you doing it. Stop today or else. I know your schedule. You can't hide from me ever. I'm always watching. I know when you leave in the morning and I know when you stay home. Santa? Is that you? This is my last warning. Your worst nightmare is about to happen. And the letter writer followed through. Police found the Coleman family's bodies in their beds on May 5th. And the first question that comes to mind is why the police were there at all. The neighbors didn't hear anything. None of the victims made a call to 911. So what made them go to the house? The answer Chris did. The surveillance camera his neighbor had so helpfully set up to catch their stalker caught him pulling out of their driveway at 5.43 a.m. that morning. A little less than an hour later, he called his detective neighbor from the gym and said he'd been trying to reach his family. Nobody was answering, and he asked him if he would go over and check on them. But really? I mean, they were sleeping when he left at the crack of dawn, or, you know, so he said. But 45 minutes later, when they didn't answer his calls, the next call you make is to the police? Maybe they're still asleep. But of course, they weren't. And that kind of staged reaction was a pretty big red flag. He thought he was giving himself an alibi by calling from the gym. But after a little digging, they found some very incriminating clues he left behind. For one thing, his cover story was about as sturdy as a paper plate at a barbecue. It only took one look for the medical examiner to point out that his family had been gone for at least three hours before he made that call to the police, but he was caught on camera leaving the house only an hour before they were found. Next, they noticed that he took a longer than usual route back, which coincidentally put him at the house right after the police found the bodies. So when they took a hard look at him, because it's always the husband, They saw fresh scratches on his hands and arms, and his knuckles looked red. And when they asked him about that, he punched the ambulance gurney repeatedly. He just happened to be sitting on it. And, well, there you go. There's a a reason for his knuckles. And his gym bag held orange twine, the same thickness as the ligature marks on his family's necks. And he had a receipt for red spray paint, the same kind of paint used to paint those horrible messages on his walls. Why would you keep those things with you? And then 
They found a glove with red spray paint on it, tossed on the side of Interstate 255, the same road that Chris took to the gym that morning. And the big question: Why would some nut target a woman's bodyguard, then eliminate his family, but leave him alone? After all, the letter writer did say that he knew when Chris was home and when he left. So why would he wait for him to drive away before carrying out his threat? Then there was the fact that Chris didn't even ask what happened to them. He didn't try to go upstairs where their bodies were. He just sat on the lawn, worked up some crocodile tears, and waited for his father to come over. He was the very picture of a prime suspect. And to make it worse, he waited two days to tell Sherry's family that she and the boys were gone. It takes a sick, sick person to take three innocent souls like that. The people around Chris didn't think he was capable of that, but Sherry sure did. From the outside, the Coleman's came across as a beautiful, loving family. Sherry was a stay-at-home mom. Her sons were outgoing, budding athletes. They both played on the local football team, but close friends knew that the image they were putting out there was a facade. Chris was traveling for work more often than he was home. He made about a hundred grand a year as Joyce Meyer's bodyguard, but money was still tight, and they fought about bills a lot. There was also tension with her parents-in-law. They were strict conservatives, you know, they were co-pastors of a church, and she was a little bit more relaxed and fun-loving. It added friction to their marriage, and by 2008, despite her best efforts to keep it together, it seemed like her marriage was hanging on by a thread. So Sherry was texting painful messages to friends. She said things like, "Chris wants a divorce." He said, "Me and my kids are in the way of his job, and if something happens to me, Chris did it." Was she right? When police dug deeper, a picture of sex, lies, and betrayal started to form. They combed through his laptop, hoping to hunt down his mysterious stalker. And as it turned out, they did. The emails were coming. From inside the house, specifically, they were written on his work laptop, which could only be accessed with his work password. On November fourteenth, two thousand eight, he set up a Gmail account with the address destroychris at gmail dot com. He wasn't going for subtle. Twenty minutes later, he sent himself the first of many mysterious, threatening emails. The subject line of the first one read "Houston Death" because you know he was going to be in Houston with Joyce Meyer. The next day, he sent another one. This one he named "F U L." I mean, except he didn't say "F." He said the whole thing because that's not very intimidating to just be like "F U." But anyway, it was sent to him. It was sent to Joyce and Joyce's son. So, what would make Chris do something like that? One word. And it rhymes with sistress. In October of two thousand eight, a month before he set up that new Gmail account, he started getting extra chummy with his wife's best friend from high school, a cocktail waitress in Florida by the name of Tara Lins. And by getting chummy, I, I mean naked stuff. He even gave her a promise ring. And what kind of promise did that piece of jewelry symbolize? The same kind of promise every man gives his mistress. He was going to leave his wife. The plan was to file for divorce in May, and that's pretty specific, isn't it? May, and not just May, but May fifth, the day that they were found. So why would he put that kind of date out there all the way back in October, November? 
because he needed time to build a foundation of fear with this letter writing campaign. And it was all carefully designed to lead police away from him, the most logical suspect, and toward an alternative, a mysterious letter writing fanatic with a grudge against his famous boss's bodyguard. Cause, you know, that happens. In April 2009, when Sherry was home alone with the kids, being scared out of her wits by that threatening letter, her husband was in Hawaii with Tara, making dirty home movies in their hotel room. And before and after that trip, she'd been using his credit card to pay her bills. So no wonder money was a little tight. Now, when police in Florida questioned Tara, she painted a picture of a man who was desperate to leave his wife and kids to be with her. She told them Chris would text her pictures when he was asleep and, you know, Sherry was asleep to prove that he wasn't having sex with his wife. Tara registered on a wedding site. They were planning a January 2010 ceremony. They even had the name of their future child all picked out, Zoe. And she told them all about the cruise that Chris had booked for them to go to the Virgin Islands. The police later found out that he'd canceled his family's trip to Disney World not long before they were found in their beds. But this isn't a Nicole Kessinger situation. Tara was nowhere near the crime scene that morning. In fact, she lived 16 hours away, and she had an alibi. Now, before Chris Watts' mistress talked to the police, she deleted her entire digital trail. Didn't look so good. Tara didn't do that. Nothing besides her terrible taste in men, connected her to the tragedy. What they really needed from Chris was a confession. So they leaned on his faith with statements like, unless you really forgive yourself and you're sorry for what you did and you tell us what you did, there's no way that you're going to go to heaven and see your kids and your family again when you die. You're going to go straight to hell. Just pretty, that's pretty straightforward. But he didn't seem too worried. He even sent Tara an affectionate text during his interrogation. Now, the only thing he was interested in saying to the cops was that he didn't do it. But he admitted it looked bad. He was being set up. So here's what he did tell Crime Watch Daily. I had two laptops, and I traveled with one and left the other one either at home or at the office. They were never both on me at the same time. And the one that was connected to the threats was the one that I left behind. So how did he explain his DNA under Sherry's nails, especially after he insisted that she fell asleep, curled up in his arms the night before she was found? In the first few days after the tragedy, neighbors and strangers came to the Coleman house with flowers and stuffed animals, you know, to put together a a memorial in their yard. You know how people do. Well, Chris took it down, and then he packed up his family's things and put them on the curb to get rid of them. So two weeks after their bodies were found, he was arrested and charged. The only question here is, why did it take two weeks? But beside the point. The question even more so is, why didn't he just follow through on his plan to divorce Sherry? It's the question we all have. You don't need to kill these people. You can actually divorce them. The law is very clear on that. But prosecutors say that the reason why is because he was desperate to be with Tara, but he thought he would lose his job with Joyce Meyer if he got a divorce. And when they asked Joyce about that at trial, she phoned in her testimony, like literally recorded it and sent it in. She said, no, no, we wouldn't have probably, probably like fired him if he got a divorce. What would have gotten him fired was the affair with Tara. 
And then his father chimed in with this nugget of wisdom about his son's marriage and affair. Here's what he actually said. Tara was just meeting a need at the time that Sherry wasn't taking care of. I mean, every man has his desires and every man has to be respected. It's built into every man. If your wife doesn't respect you, then you're going to find respect someplace else. At the time, Sherry stepped back from doing her job as a wife. You know, none of that sounds very Jesus-y, Pastor Ron. Sherry wasn't feeling it, so she deserved to be cheated on and murdered. Maybe she was a little tired from being a single mother while Chris was traveling around the world for work and pleasure. <laughs> Interestingly, detectives also found an X-rated photo of Tara on Pastor Ron's computer, according to some police reports that True Crime Daily got their hands on. So what was that about? And one more thing. Doesn't his father's reaction sound eerily familiar didn't Chris Watts' parents give pretty much the same justification for their son's brutal crime? Do these people know each other? Now, two years later, after 15 hours of deliberation, the jury made their decision, guilty on all counts. And here's why. It almost didn't happen. They almost voted or, you know, agreed to let him go. But then they discovered that he was actually lying about his affair with Tara. He had said, and she had said, that they didn't start, you know, seeing each other until November of 2008. But in actuality, they found some pictures that showed that they were really hanging out a month earlier than what they admitted to the police. And that is why they decided to convict guilty on all counts. Now, do you remember how infuriating the Chris Watts case is? How the thought of what he did to his family just incites rage? Is that just me? I hope it's not just me. Because the same thing was happening here. The jury was ready to give him the death penalty, and what he did was so heinous, they wanted to see him fry. Now, we can assume that Chris could sense the vibe in the room because he opted to let the judge sentence him instead of leaving it up to the jury. In Illinois, criminals have that choice, and honestly, a death sentence wouldn't mean much anyway. Two months earlier, Illinois had put a moratorium on executions, and the judge opted for mercy of sorts. Chris got life in prison without parole. At least this way, he'll have to sit in a cell and think about what he did every day for the rest of his life. And you will never believe where that cell is. Dodge Correctional in Wisconsin, the same place Chris Watts ended up less than a decade later. Can you believe it? And that is your recap. Thank you so much for spending some time with me today. If you like getting all the crime in half the time, we would love it if you give this a like, hit subscribe, and the bell so you never miss a story. Chris, the good Chris, a good Chris, my Chris, we're here every week with new recaps, and we want you here every time. Thank you again. Have a wonderful day.